0: Recovery Elevator, episode 193.
1: You know, the first time you cross that first, that, that first line, it becomes so much, the progression is so quick after that point. And that's what happened with me. It just, uh, it sped up.
0: Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. On today's podcast, we've got Nell. She's been sober for just over one year. She's 52 years old from Long Beach, California. And during her interview, she talks about how negotiating with yourself doesn't work. It's a fantastic interview. I know you guys are going to love it. Before we get any further, let's hear from my favorite resource in recovery, Cafe RE. The most important thing I've learned while doing the Recovery Elevator Podcast is we can't do this alone. Believe me, I tried for over two years and it didn't work. So here's the good news. With Cafe RE, you get access to a confidential and unsearchable Facebook group, which is capped at 300 members to ensure intimacy. Then you get access to the Cafe RE forum outside of Facebook, which means you don't need a Facebook account to be part of Cafe RE. Both are private and only members can see who is in the groups and what is said. In the forum and Facebook group, you get instant accountability and genuine connection with others who also wish to lead a life without alcohol. In Cafe RE, you'll find that being sober is a tremendous opportunity and not a sacrifice. For just $19 a month, you too can join the conversation. You can be paired with an accountability partner, attend educational online webinars, online meetups, attend in-person meetups and retreats, participate in book club, movie club, and more. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code opportunity to waive this setup fee. I hope to see you there. I want to remind you guys that I launched a free five-day video course. Again, these are five free videos delivered to your inbox each day. Go to recoveryelevator.com on the homepage. You can sign up there. Okay, let's get started. Today, I'm going to cover two questions I received from listeners. In fact, I'd love to answer more of your questions on the podcast please email them to paul at recoveryelevator.com with listener question in the subject line. And don't worry, if you do email me, I'm going to change the name and specific details. Okay, this first one is from Charlotte. Why do I think about drinking so much more than I did when I was drinking? So much of what I do every day is the intent of not drinking, so I think about it much more. It's confusing. Great question, Charlotte. First off, don't beat yourself up. Part of the difficulty in quitting drinking is breaking an ingrained habit. This is a more difficult habit to break because it's both physical and mental. There's an assumption that all you need is 21 days to break a habit for alcohol. Not so much. This number comes from a widely popular 1960 book called psycho cybernetics by Maxwell Maltz, a plastic surgeon who notices patients seem to take about 21 days to get used to their new faces. However, according to a 2009 study, the time it takes to form a habit really isn't that clear cut. Researchers from University College of London examined the new habits of 96 people over the space of 12 weeks and found that the average time it takes for a new habit to stick is actually 66 days. Furthermore, individual times varied from 18 to a whopping 254 days. With alcohol, which is a drug, I'm guessing the time to make this stick is well over 21 and even 66 days. It gets easier within time, but I'm guessing breaking the habit component of drinking is going to be closer to the 254 day mark. If you stick with it, you'll eventually think about it less and less. In fact, I had a friend remind me about a week before my four-year sobriety anniversary, and I was like, oh yeah, that's coming up pretty soon, isn't it? Charlotte, I can promise you, the longer you go, the less you'll think about it. A question I have for you, Charlotte, is, are you still frequenting the same bars, restaurants, and hanging out with the same friends at happy hour, for example? It's not a bad idea to take a break from these for a couple weeks. Maybe even book yourself a vacation at a yoga retreat. There is another avenue we can go down with this question. The question you ask, Charlotte, can actually be a great answer to a different question. That question would be, how do I know if I'm staying sober on sheer willpower alone? or is there a way to tell if I've got the right mindset in sobriety or what's the barometer indicating that I'm viewing sobriety as a sacrifice and not an opportunity if you're thinking about drinking much more than you previously did then perhaps you're using willpower alone which is finite and will eventually exhaust itself if you're viewing sobriety as a sacrifice rather than an opportunity then of course you'll be thinking about alcohol all the time this is the concept behind the forbidden fruit Now I'll address the last part of your question, Charlotte. You mentioned so much of what I do every day is with the intent of not drinking. Great job, Charlotte. This will eventually pay off. Trust me. It sounds like you're focusing on the action and not the results. Keep doing what you're doing, and within time, the magic will happen. This next question is from Mandy. Hi, Paul. I quit drinking on August 29th, 2018. Nice job, Mandy. So I'm reaching my two months on Saturday. I have been a lifelong drinker, and I love, loved it. Pretty rare, you will see a picture of me not holding a beer. I love beer, and have always felt that it isn't real alcohol. After all, you usually get full before you get drunk, right? I started when I was about 13 to 14 years old, and was always in search for the next good time and party. My drinking was usually on weekends alone, and out with friends, and more often in a bar setting. As the years progressed, so did the frequency and amount of drinking. On many occasions over the years of drinking and partying, I always thought I could just stop or cut back when I needed to. On many occasions, I knew how dangerous alcohol addiction could be. I've done my fair share of dry Januaries, and beer fasts, as I like to call them. I thought I had my drinking under control, somewhat, until about 1.5 years ago when my health started to turn. I had serious digestive internal issues, but always blew it off as something else. I tried to switch up beer to wine. I hate wine, actually always have, until I discovered sangria. Now my alcohol consumption could be justified to morning drinking too. Sangria is juice after all, right? Weekend drinking became daily drinking. Nighttime drinking turned into all-day drinking. I tried a geographic switch with my work. It wasn't until I was sober that things started to turn back to normal with my health, including my weight, my skin, my hair, my face. It's hard to describe years of health and many other issues and regrets in one paragraph but I'm still trying to wrap my head around everything, including the fact that I may or may not be an alcoholic. Paul, my question is what is the difference between someone who is an alcoholic and, or someone who has a drinking problem? Is there a difference? First off, Mandy, thank you so much for the email and great job on two months of sobriety. You're sending questions to a podcast host, knowing that you might not like the answer. Great job. You're listening to your heart and I'll answer your question with a couple other questions. What's the difference between an alcoholic and someone with a drinking problem? Well, what's the difference between soda and pop? What's the difference between a channel changer, clicker, and remote control? Sofa, Davenport, or couch? You get the point. In my opinion, there isn't much of a difference between someone with a drinking problem and an alcoholic. There is a difference between a heavy drinker and an alcoholic. Some heavy drinkers can stop at any time for any duration of time. How they do that is a mystery to me. Due to the stigma, when we hear the word alcoholic, we assume it's someone who lives under a bridge and drinks out of a brown paper bag. Data suggests this is 5% of alcoholics, or people with drinking problems, and the remainder of us are high-functioning, job-holding, quality members of society, probably just like yourself, Mandy. Mandy also writes, I quit with sheer willpower and the support of my party buddy slash husband. We both had a good hard look at our habits and decided together to make some changes. I don't like the label alcoholic and I can't wear that badge. I just can't. Yesterday was a tough day. I wanted to sit and drink 15 beers and get grade 9 drunk. Life is stressful. Although I did not drink last night, but the nagging is still there. I find myself irritable and angry today. I am taking it one day at a time and I am still scared of being sick from alcohol. I know I dodged a bullet. I was so scared and I created a chronic illness with my drinking and I never want to go back down that road again but I'm questioning myself. Can I drink again and just take breaks? I know I have a long road ahead. When you mentioned I used sheer willpower to quit drinking, I actually disagree with that. Sheer willpower would entail you going at this without the support of your husband. Mandy, fantastic job of burning the ships and bringing your husband on board. You've already embraced the we can't do this alone mentality concept, and you've got the holy grail and accountability partners, your hubby. Great job. You mentioned i don't like the label alcoholic i can't wear that badge i just can't my response is then don't the first 50 recovery elevator episodes i used to refer to myself as an alcoholic all the time in nearly every episode now i rarely do i've broken up with the word officially twice in podcast episodes 75 and 159. feel free to use the term alcohol use disorder or edr which is enhanced dopamine receptors or simply say you're a person who doesn't like drinking poison i think it's a fantastic idea to ditch the label don't identify with it if we over identify with a label the unconscious mind has the power to make that label a reality don't call yourself an alcoholic that's fine however this can backfire when we are in denial about our drinking habits so be cautious of that this might sound strange but in aa i don't think it should be hey my name is paul i'm an alcoholic it should be hey My name's Paul. I was the unheard child as a kid, and I use alcohol to help soothe pain. Something like that. You get the point. Let's address the last part of your question. You say, can I drink and be the party girl again and simply take breaks? I know I have a long road ahead. In short, Mandy, yes, you can be the party girl again and drink. But I think we both know the data behind you clearly indicates what will follow. You mentioned you had serious digestive and internal issues recently with your health most likely those will return and progress with the drinking in regards to your last statement. You say, I know I have a long road ahead to that. I say, if you think and condition of mind, you're going to have a long road ahead, then that's exactly what you're going to get a long road ahead. Mandy, in my opinion, you've got a wonderful opportunity ahead of you. It doesn't have to be a long road. Again, email your listener questions to Paul at RecoveryElevator.com. I had a great time answering these questions. And the guy answering the questions, I went to Chapman University in Southern California and majored in business and Spanish. Take what you want and leave the rest. Okay, and now let's hear from Nell. Nell, how are you?
1: Hey, Paul. I'm great. Thank you. How are you?
0: I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. And Nell, let's get right into this. How long have you been sober?
1: Oh, Paul, just a little over a year, so about 370 something days.
0: Nice job, Nell. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, now before we get any further, give listeners a little background about yourself, maybe where you're from, what you do for a living, your age, do you have a family, and most importantly, what do you like to do for fun?
1: Okay, well, I am uh, 52 years old, born and raised uh, in Mississippi in a small town, Shannon, Mississippi, right outside of uh, Tupelo, uh, which is the birthplace of Elvis Presley. That's how most people might recognize that. I live in New York, Long Beach, New York. I've been in New York for about 15 years. I am married. My husband and I just celebrated our 13th uh, year anniversary together last week. And for fun, well, let's see, for what I do. I'm actually a personal trainer. and uh, But this past year, I've taken some time off and really just kind of focused on my sobriety and the things that I you know want to work on. And I'm looking now at how I'm going to incorporate maybe some sobriety coaching, maybe with uh, exercise, and what I like to do for fun. Well, I'm really kind of rediscovering that, but I love sports, so football season is underway, so I'm very, very happy. I follow my Mississippi State Bulldogs and also the New York Jets and the Pittsburgh Steelers.
0: (laughs) There's a lot of things, what you said right (laughs) there, that made me
1: smile. Yes, I love fantasy football. I'm, um, you know, that's a huge, huge passion. So, um, I play in that and spend a lot of time every week devoted to my research.
0: <laughs> yeah. Me too. <laughs> I, I spend about 4 to 5 hours yeah. a week managing my fantasy football team and uh, I'm hesitant to say that live.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> you no, know, I I knew you would appreciate that, Paul.
0: Without a doubt without a doubt. Yeah, last night we record these probably 4 to 5 weeks in advance, but last night I watched the, the Atlanta Falcons play the Philadelphia Eagles a Thursday night season opener and I just felt good. <laughs> it was awesome.
1: Yeah, it did it did feel good. Unfortunately, I fell asleep. It's a little uh, a little late, 8:20 uh, Eastern time. You know, I'm on the East Coast. Uh, you're on the Mountain Time. That's wonderful. That's yeah. the best time to watch football.
0: Yeah. And uh, I had no players playing in that game on my fantasy football team, so I was able just to sit, relax, it was the day, of the night before I was having a sobriety anniversary, and I was just loving it. It was good. Good stuff.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yes, it is.
0: Yeah, and now, you mentioned before I hit record that you, you listen to the podcast weekly. I'm going to throw in a curveball. You said, you know, you, you, you can kind of, you know the questions that are going to be asked. Are you ready for mm-hmm. it? Here it comes. What's your favorite? Yeah, what's your favorite sea animal?
1: Sea animal. Oh, wow. Yeah. I would say dolphin.
0: Okay. Are you sure about that?
1: I believe so. You know, living in Long Beach, <laughs> I'm fortunate enough, I live right on the ocean, so uh, I get to see uh, dolphins back and forth uh, pretty frequently here.
0: Gotcha. Great answer. Okay, let's get into some drinking information here. Oh. So give listeners. Okay. Yeah, give listeners a little background about your drinking and describe your drinking habits, how much you drink. Did you ever attempt to regulate, put rules into place? And, uh, yeah, take a little bit of time, maybe three, five, seven minutes, however much you like. Give us your journey in chronological form and include dates and times. So right now, I think you mentioned you're 52. Tell us how old you are when you first started to quit and first realized and things like that. I'm excited to hear it.
1: Yeah, I Paul started drinking when I was uh, shortly after my 16th birthday. My parents died uh, when I was 15. And, you know, as part of my story, I have to, I have to admit this and say this, which most people do not know this, but my father killed himself and killed my mother. And that obviously was extremely traumatizing. And there was some abuse going on in my house, and it was very chaotic growing up. And I I just really never knew what kind of mood my father was going to be in. So I, you know, the best way I can describe it is I always kind of felt like this chicken on a hot plate. You know, I never knew when I was going to be, you know, when the temperature was going to be turned up and I had to dance. I just really never was able to relax. So shortly after my parents died, I tried alcohol. Uh, Beer was the first thing I had. And I absolutely hated the taste. But I loved the way it made me feel. It just, you know, it, it, it just made me relax for the first time in my life. And it was like it just turned this little switch on in me. So throughout high school, you know, I was, I think, uh, I, I drank more than most teenagers. But still, I wouldn't have considered myself really, I guess, an alcoholic. But drank during the week, but most definitely on the weekends. And when I drank, it was usually to get drunk. Made it out of high school okay and then went on to college, like I said before, uh, Mississippi State University. And I, uh, I started drinking a lot more, uh, even partying a little more. Fortunately, I had met my first husband uh, my senior year of college. And, you know, he really helped me get through that senior year because looking back on it now, i was I was drinking every day almost, and he would help me write my the the papers that were due for my for my courses uh and He really helped me graduate to be honest with you you know I think there was a part of me that always knew that I didn't drink like other people that I probably liked it too much, but you know i I had friends that drank a lot and or you know I would see them drink maybe not as much as me, but you know, I I really just didn't have anything to compare it to, I guess is what I'm saying. All I knew about being an alcoholic growing up was my maternal grandfather was a raging alcoholic. He quit drinking only when he was in his 50s. I think I was probably in the third grade only because he was a diabetic and they were going to have to amputate his leg. So he was a very um, he was what you call a dry drunk, but uh, very unhappy and lived a really just very unhappy and died when he was in his early 60s. You know, and that's what I thought an alcoholic looked like or someone that really, you know, that, that would come looking for handouts and, and drinking out of the brown paper bag. I, I didn't know that you could be a functioning alcoholic. So, you know, fast forward after college, I moved away, moved to uh, to California for a little while. Uh, then moved to Colorado for eight years and again in Colorado, it was just a whole party throughout my twenties, just, you know, I worked, I mean, I, I always took care of myself because you know, when your parents die that way, it was everything at that point was a big, was about taking care of myself and realizing I was pretty much on my own. So I was able for that reason at times, I always knew I had to take care of myself. So that always was my first priority. And then drinking and partying was the second priority. So my drinking could really, I would push, take it up to a certain limit. And then I would kind of reel it back in. So in my 30s, you know, my first husband and I divorced. He was a great guy. Uh, But again, we, we loved to party together. But we really, we were not suited to get married. And in retrospect, you know, I probably would not have married him had I not been drinking so much. You know, it's just, you really just. When you mix alcohol into a relationship and it's and it's that much, it's just really nothing good is ever going to come out of that. So he and I uh, split up and we're still friends to this day. And, you know, I'm working now, again, still have always worked and taking care of myself and again, still, still drinking. But now in my, my 30s, I'm, you know, trying to grow up a little bit and I moved back to Mississippi to be with my sister who... Uh, Still lives in Mississippi, and at this point had two kids, and I really wanted to be a part of their lives, so I moved back, and you know things were good. I was I was happy for the most part, but again, always like you said, managing my alcohol, managing my alcohol. And when I was thirty five, I met my husband in Orange Beach, Alabama. We were both I I vacationed there every year with my family, and he just happened to be there, and on a bachelor trip we met. So that was it, you know, a couple years later, here I am moving to New York. And that's really when my eyes started becoming open to how much I was drinking because my husband is what you would call a very normal drinker. And I always envied him and thought, wow, how can somebody just have one drink? You know, my whole life really, I feel like looking back, I can see how much time I spent managing it. And my husband knew I drank a lot, but at the same time, he just, he could see that I was very high functioning, no. And usually and if you ask him, he would say that I really would drink a lot more when I was in Mississippi and not New York, which was kind of interesting. But finally, you know, it, it just catches up to you. And it got to the point where alcohol was really making me physically ill, not because I'm, you know, was drinking, you know, a whole liter of, of vodka or anything. We're talking two drinks and it would really physically make me ill. So I discovered marijuana and game on then. So instead of drinking as much, I was smoking pot. And, you know, someone said the other day, and I absolutely loved this, they said, they smoked pot like they always wanted to drink. And that was me. I could see, yeah, I I, I was like, bam, when they said that. You know, and it, I could just see that I was starting to make some really, really, really bad choices. You know, but, again, it's, it's you know, like I said, I was I always managed it. It was like, no, I have to work tomorrow, so I can't really drink this. Or if my friends were going out on a weeknight, there were so many times where I would not go because I didn't really, I couldn't see myself, A, having fun if I didn't drink, and, B, if I did drink, I didn't know if it was going to be one of those nights where it was going to be a two-drink or a five-drink and not remembering anything, mm-hmm. you know, and, and also, too, the, probably the last 10 years of my drinking, I did, I did blackout um, uh, multiple times. But I would call what, what was happening is I was having these um, brownouts, is how I've heard it put, where even after just, you know, a couple drinks, my memory would just, I couldn't, I wouldn't be able to recall certain parts of the evening. So it, it was really beginning to take its toll. And mentally, it was, it was taking its toll as well.
0: Now back us up to a little bit before August twenty eighth, two thousand and seventeen. Uh, yeah. was there a rock bottom moment? Or what happened to to force you to make that final push into sobriety?
1: Well, yeah, you know, my family, my sister has three three kids and the youngest, Andrew I spend a lot of time back and forth visiting them. They're a big part of my life. And I could really see, I, I I couldn't trust myself any longer, Paul. That was really what scared me. I had always been able to draw lines and stay behind that line. And the last couple of years, I found myself saying, okay, I'm not going to do this. And then I would do it. I'm not going to smoke before, you know, six o'clock. Well, then I started smoking at four. But really what happened was I could see one day I was going to pick my nephew up at the time. He was 11 from school. And I told myself that morning, oh, you have to pick Andrew up. So no smoking until afterwards. Well, you know, I, I did. I smoked and I, I, I went and I, I drove and I picked him up from school. And I'm really, you know, embarrassed to say that I did that a couple times with him over a couple different visits where I would drive him around. And it it made my insides, you know, just just turn inside out because I knew I was way off course at this point that, you know, these are the things that the people that I love more than anything. And here I'm putting them in harm's way and putting these things above them. And that was really when I knew I had a serious problem and that you know i just didn't know how i was going to live with myself if i if i didn't face it
0: now there's so much to cover and i want to say a fantastic job of bringing us up to speed at where we are today i've, okay. I've never heard anything i haven't haven't had an interviewee on the podcast yet who who had that happen with their parents at the same time at, at age 15 and I'm, I'm sorry to hear about that and we'll I'm, i want to dive more into that later but nice okay. job you you're you're doing fantastic um, there's one line that I wrote down and underlined twice <laughs> while you were talking <laughs>
1: okay. and which resonated <laughs> okay. with me.
0: And I want to explore that and it's couldn't trust myself any longer. And I want to take a moment and I want listeners to actually ask themselves that question or look back at a time when they had that feeling. Cause that's, that's a feeling. That's not a thought. That is a feeling deep down it, it, in, internally at a visceral level. And I had those two where I was, you keep you keep the beast in the cage saying i'm not going to drink before this time i'm not going to drink at work and all of a sudden when those when those borders start to be crossed that thick line in the sand gets crossed it's not a thought it's a feeling where you say uh-oh i can't trust myself any longer can you comment a little bit more on that and what that feeling was like cuz for me it induced anxiety and for me anxiety is something that hasn't quite happened yet in the future cuz when i knew i couldn't trust myself any longer that feeling again—it's it's at like the conscious level, not an unconscious level. The conscious level was telling me, "Uh-oh, we've got a major problem," and that sounds similar to what you said.
1: Oh, absolutely, Paul. That was when I became more frightened than I ever had been in my life, because, like I said, I could always—I I, I always up to that point, you know—knew that I would I could reel myself back and. You know, it just got to the point where, you know, I couldn't any longer. And it, you know, I was trying to negotiate with myself. And once you start trying to negotiate with yourself, you're never going to win. And and you're right, the anxiety and the fear, which I always had anxiety. I never wanted to admit that to anyone because, you know, most people that would look at me think, oh, you know, hey, now she's strong. She's got all of her shit together. And little did they know, that just wasn't how it was inside. So when I started crossing the, my red lines that I had set, that anxiety just went through the roof, and it just became more unmanageable. And I, I think for me, that is when, it, it, you know, the first time you cross that first, that, that first line, it becomes so much the progression is so quick after that point. And that's what happened with me. It just uh, it sped up. And I think that the the reason why is because the anxiety just kicked in uh, into overgear, you know, overdrive.
0: It's so true what you said that once that first barrier falls, <laughs> it's almost like that first barrier knocks down the other barriers, and it's like, well, you know, I already drank drank at work once, so might as well it's game on, and everything else falls
1: exactly. And there's oh, yeah.
0: another exactly. thing you said that I want to explore a little bit more. Your two rules that sounded like you know, was in your 20s and 30s, in 40s perhaps, but number one. First off, you had to take care of yourself. With the loss of your parents at age 15, you, you were solo. You were flying solo, and you had to number one, take care of yourself, and number two, party. I'm wondering, was there sort of a mixture of the two where actually the drinking came into part of your one? Like, did, did drinking actually become a medicine of sorts?
1: I think so. I think that, again, I, I, I use the drinking, and I think most people that drink excessively do, it's to, you know, to kind of quieten that, all those voices in our head and the anxiety and, you know, the the fear. And I'd, certainly I used it as, a, as a, a coping mechanism and as medicine as you want to say.
0: Yeah, you know, for, for me, it was almost opposite. I, I did not experience that type of loss that you did. I don't know what that feels like. But for me, growing up, especially late teens, early twenties, the, the the period when I owned the bar in Spain, it was number one, party, have a good time, Pablo, and number two, take care of myself. And it kind of eventually it blended, where the partying was happening, but number two, you know, alcohol is my best friend, and it worked for a time to give me that big hug. Internally, I was getting a hug from the drug called alcohol, and everything was okay, until it wasn't. It was, so, what was it like when you first quit drinking? And and thank you for sharing the moments when you picked up your your nephew Andrew. Um, when you said you wouldn 't smoke, um, I was right there in, in the back seat with you that was was,
1: was <laughs> that was coming
0: and good for you, you made the change and and how did you do it, and what was that like?
1: gosh, like I said, I knew that my life was spinning i I could feel it and you know thinking about how my my parents' life ended and some of the chaos and dysfunction I grew up in, you know i I want to live a life that, you know, that, that, that my niece and nieces and nephews can look up to and, 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 and have an example. And I was so off course. And at this point, I thought I have nothing else to lose. I'm not going to go out like my, like my mom and dad. I don't want to do that. So I'm like, what can I do? Okay, first thing is I need to put this down. And as soon as I did that, Paul, and I said, okay, I will make this. I will stop drinking. I will stop smoking. There was this, all I can say is this peace and serenity that came over me. And it was if God was saying, okay, that's all I needed for you to do is to say you would do that. And now I will help you. And ever since then, I really do believe that God has put into my life, the people and uh the places that have really helped me grow this past year, you know, including your your podcast, when I was searching to decide, "Oh, am I an alcoholic Which, you know what 's funny is that if you have to even ask yourself that you 've got a problem and <laughs> Correct. so when, yeah. so when, yeah when when I went searching, you know Googled, "Hey, am I an alcoholic, and for podcasts on addiction, your's popped up. And, you know, I, I heard Robert Steadman, and I was just, bam. I'm like, oh, my God. Yes. You know, first of all, Robert graduated from Mississippi State University, just like I did. That was a crazy coincidence. And then, you know, I, I every person you've ever had on your show, I understand what they're saying. It just felt like a whole new language that people were talking. And it was like my language, anxiety, fear, you know, the feelings that the alcohol or the drugs, you know, that you would get the releases that you would get from it. It's if you don't have this problem, it's you really just don't understand it. So, you know, so your podcast was really, really, really important there in the very beginning, helping me see, wow, yes, I have a problem. And I've got to fix this.
0: Well, thanks for listening Nell. And it's cool you mentioned Robert Steadman. I've had had him on the podcast twice. He was my tour guide when I went to New Orleans last year for a wedding. He Mm -hmm. was a freaking rock star, and he's still doing sobriety well. He's kicking major butt out there. And it's so cool, this network. I've had people do want to do interviews that don't want to use their first names. The first like 20 episodes, I was okay with that. But moving forward, we're trying to shred the shame. And I've heard so many stories of people will just use their first name and they'll say like an area, the large metropolitan area. And they'll get emails of listeners saying, hey, I think we went to elementary school together. There's so many people struggling. <laughs> we cannot do this alone. And it's just, it's courageous. You know, sharing your story. Everybody before they do the podcast, they're like, Paul, I'm so nervous. <laughs> I mean, it's just yeah. a common thread. Right. I hear it. Every time.
1: Well, I just wanted to I add to going. that uh, shredding the Shedding the shame or shredding the shame, uh-huh. that's the number one reason why I'm doing this podcast, is because when I decided, besides listening to your podcast, and then I'm like, okay, I need help, there was only one person that I knew that was in recovery. Only one, because most people don't talk about it. And there are so many people that struggle with this. And, you know, those are the people that I want to, to help and for them to realize you're okay. You know, you, you, there are other people like there just like us all out there. And you can, you can conquer this or you can ma- not manage it, but you can quit and your life will be so much better on the other side. You know, if you'll just take that leap of faith. And that's what I really call it is a leap of faith.
0: And now let me see if I can pull off this analogy and let's back it up a little bit to talk about sure. the moment when you realized, you said, look, this is not working in my life. You know, your, your grandfather died in his early 60s. It's time to break the cycle and what that happens is it's hard to get that message to the unconscious level but when we do, it's almost like the deepened grooves of a record that's just going round and round and round. We actually splice that record or like take an exacto knife and carve a niche out of it and it's not spinning in the normal it, it, something has changed. So the deepened grooves, the, you know, the rigidity of the thinking that we had prior, it's actually changed at the unconscious level and I know what you mean. That happened with me. There was a moment of clarity. It was like it was a peacefulness, like a weight had been lifted and you got to keep going with it or else the track you know the record will eventually fall back into the track of the old record but how did you keep that change going
1: well you know that this was the, another one of the miracles that could just kind of where I think God kind of stepped in coincidentally the 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 one person that I knew that was in recovery lives about an hour away from me and within 48 hours of me thinking you know maybe I should reach out to her her name is Kim and then, again, you know, typical alcoholic, and especially for me, I do not ask for help from no one. I do everything on my own. And <laughs> so I'm like, no, I can do this on my own. That's okay. And, Paul, I promise you, within 48 hours of me thinking of that, I'm on the boardwalk in Long Beach, and I hear my name being called out, and it's Kim. Wow. And, yes, and I just, I, I was in shock. And I, I I walked up to her. I didn't say how are you doing, kiss my ass. I said nothing but, oh my God, Kim, you're not going to believe this. And I told her everything, what was going on with me. And she she stayed with me for the next few weeks, meaning checking in with me. And she's like, Nell, you need to go to AA. And I'm like, Oh, that's okay. I'm I'm I'm. At this point, I was a um, a member of recovery um, um, RE Blue. And so I'm like, no, I'm on an online support group and I'm doing good, you know? And she's like, okay. So next week she would check in with me again. So really for the first four weeks of my sobriety, I was a member of uh, RE Blue. Mm-hmm. And then Kim was contacting me each week and she's finally to get her off my back. I agreed to go to an AA meeting, and she found one for me and said, go to this meeting, and I did, and I'll be honest, that was the best decision that I ever made, because it really just gave me so much guidance and the support, and you, you know, really, on, what I can say is it just gave me instructions, and that's what I needed more than anything, It's just some guidance and somebody to say, Nell, stop thinking, just do this. Just do this until you get more and more clarity. And that's really what happens because I really believe those first few months you're you're still processing all of this. You're in this you're in this transitional phase and you know, you that's when you need the help the most. And I found that AA just you know, just thank God that Jim was there on the boardwalk that day. I thank God that she stayed on my ass every all the time until I agreed to go to an AA meeting. So that, that that's is a much fantastic
0: that. story. And, and, and the online stuff is is awesome. And it's kind of baby steps. There's a transition that needs to take place. But the online stuff, it, it doesn't compare with with the in-person meetups, whether it's uh, in-person mm-hmm. cafe, RE meetups, the AA meetups, the smart recovery meetings, the in-person connections. It's just, it's just a different ballgame. And there's something else you said earlier that I absolutely love. Again, wrote it down, underlined it, huge <laughs> value bomb, is when you start negotiating with yourself, it rarely, I'm going to go on a limb and say it never ends well because we can't think ourselves out of this issue. And that's, we're trying to say like, okay, well, if we do this, then I'll allow myself a couple of drinks. You know, we start playing that game. It doesn't work. Can you think of a specific time where you negotiated with yourself and it didn't quite pan out the way you wanted it to?
1: Oh my gosh. I negotiated with myself quite a bit. You know, really, uh, let's say uh, a time when I did, you know. Uh, Really going to a wedding, let's say. And I tell myself, okay, look now, you're only going to have, you know, two drinks. And by the time, you know, the the evening's over, I've lost my shoes. And I don't remember most of the night. You know, I was never good. It, most of the times when I tried to negotiate uh, with myself, it didn't end. It didn't end too well, especially, I should say, there towards the last few years. I was pretty good with it up until, up until the last couple of years. That's always a sign that you've got, that you've got um, an issue when you know you start negotiating with yourself. That should be your first, one of your very first red flags.
0: And I think that summarizes why getting sober at recovery is so difficult, A, to do, but B, to conceptualize, is because you can't negotiate with yourself. I'm taking one step further. You can't think yourself out of this issue. You have to get to the point where you just say, fudge, I'm done thinking. I just need to trust that A, the group. The, the collective consciousness outside of my brain knows better than I do, and you just need to start doing things different and so I mean it's beautiful to see this, and I went through it personally, and I know you have too, yeah, and so how are you going to get day three seventy two three seventy three what's your plan in sobriety moving forward now?
1: You know my plan is keep it simple do what i'm do what's working for me, which you know I go to uh, I'm fortunate that i I go to a group that meets every day and it's consistent we have the same time every day and i make at least six six times a week sometimes i do seven days but that is a that is a number one priority for me because i realize that the rest of my life depends on what i do in that meeting so that is my number one priority I also know that this past year of my life, I have felt more freedom than I've ever felt in, in my 51 years prior to that. And again, that is simply because, like you just said earlier, I've, I'm not thinking so much anymore. I don't try and figure everything out because I can't figure it out. And it's, it's just it's like a little mouse going through a maze that's, that there's no way out. And we just continue to run around, you know, and and I've kindly I've accepted that now. So, you know, going forward, I'll continue to go to to uh, my AA meetings, um, make that a priority. You know, my mind always there was a million thoughts going through my mind every minute. And I thought that was normal. Uh, and if you would have asked me. Would I ever be able to meditate? I thought that was a joke, but uh, that is something now that I do every day, and I can easily now meditate for 15 to 20 minutes. It's, it's just, you know, and if I could tell you that I'm off blood pressure medication and my cholesterol, it, 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 you know, physically, you know, I, my health has improved, even though I was in really good shape anyway. It's, it's just really, everything revolves around your thoughts. And that is the, that is the thing that, that I had to get a hold of, is realizing how out of control my thoughts were, and working and practicing. And I wasn't good at meditating to begin with, and that's what I would, will tell anyone. It's like anything else. You have to practice. Uh, but once you get into it, there is such a benefit to it, and it just carries over into everything else in your life. And also exercise, which is 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 huge part of my recovery. It was a part of my life I, I was a trainer, and I still refer to myself as a trainer, but that's a huge part of my life is is staying physically active you know and trying to take care of myself
0: Nell, you dropped a huge value bomb in there, and yeah it was uh everything revolves with the thoughts. I think that's how you said it, and when I first yeah. got sober. You know, a lot of the stuff was external. It's like, okay, I'm going to get sober. I need to do yoga. I need to get new shoes. I need to go get a new gym. And everything, for the most part, was external. I need to go to a new meeting, this and that. And you're, like, way ahead of the game. You're way ahead of where I was. But I slowly started to realize the same thing as well, that everything – has to do with the thoughts internally. And we have sixty to 70,000 thoughts per day. Are they all right? When I first got sober, I thought they were all 100% correct. And I would let a thought go. It would take me, it would ruin my day, my week, my month. It would turn into a mood, a personality. It eventually could turn into who I was. So being aware. And that's what I'm focusing a lot in my recovery these days. Is just being aware. When a thought comes in, I don't have to say, bingo, that's spot on. I can say, maybe that's not right. And I'll let that thought, just like a weather pattern, go in. And leave and I don't have to jump on and ride that thing to the very end it feels it feels really good and and now I want to talk about the why for a second you, In in the rooms you've heard you've heard this often drinking is but a symptom can you talk to us about the why in your drinking
1: oh sure I I definitely believe there is a genetic component I believe uh, but also to um, the environment had a lot to do that with that with me, uh, you know, with my parents. Uh, my father was abusive towards my mother. It was like I said, you never. Everything revolved around what mood my father was going to be in that day. So there was anxiety already. For whatever reason, I had a very, very, very uh, low self-esteem, and I have voices that you know, the, the, the your critic in your head that's constantly chirping and telling you you're not good enough. You know, you didn't work hard enough. Even when I would uh, have, you know, accomplish a goal, it, you know, that critic would continue and say, are you kidding? You could have done better. Um, it was always this nagging, nagging critic in my head that just would not shut up. And the, the fear and the anxiety with that, I just, I didn't know how to handle life without having an escape plan. And my escape plan was always my alcohol, always my alcohol. And I didn't always have to have it. But if I knew I didn't have access to it, wow, my anxiety would jump through the roof. And, you know, if you wanted to go to a restaurant and they didn't serve alcohol, are you kidding? I'm not going there. I wouldn't go there. You know, so uh, all of these things. But it was, you know, that was the big thing, Uh, the anxiety and the chaos of, of kind of my childhood, the trauma of of my parents' death, not being told that you are not your thoughts. And, you know, that was the biggest thing for me when I realized what you just said. All of those those negative thoughts, you soon begin to think that's really who you are. And it's really not, you know. That's not you. And once that was pointed out to me, which, by the way, was a book that, uh, you had recommended on your podcast, uh, The Untethered Soul. <laughs> I knew uh, that Michael was coming. I, I tell <laughs> you, I, that was, Paul, that was, bam, the best book that I've ever read, life-changing book that I recommend to anyone. It just, there were so many things I just didn't know. And once I realized that I was not my thoughts, Okay, then I got a little separation, and then I started working on becoming aware of those thoughts. And, again, it it sounds, I know to to people listening, they're thinking about uh, quitting drinking, and, and, you know, I know that this sounds all like a, a lot, but it's really just one little step at a time, and just accepting that you can change and that you're not your thoughts. And if you put that little bit of a practice into that, you will be absolutely amazed at how you can kind of turn your life around. I've always had a lot of energy, and I'm very passionate and I've been able to do very well for myself in life and that's with being an alcoholic. so I am so excited about this next part of my life, and you know because you I've always heard that alcoholics were actually smarter than than the average person and i I'm not saying that to be boastful or anything, but I'm so, you know, just excited to see what all I can really do now because I feel like I have all of my energy pointed in the right direction finally.
0: And and Nell, before we reach the rapid fire round, I want to comment on The Untethered Soul by, by Michael Singer. I read that, I think, a year and a half to two years in sobriety. And I remember several times reading the book, I'd like put it down, look around the room and be like, come on, that, that, that can't be right. Because there were some thoughts right. you know, and <laughs> concepts in there that were so foreign to me, especially the number one of, of like, you are not the voice inside your head. You are the one hey. who hears it. And I feel that Eckhart Tolle, The Power of Now and A New Earth are continuations of, of that book. And I highly recommend those two readings. In fact, I'm listening to A New Earth by Eckhart Tolle for the second time right now. And it's, it's profound. It's, it's good stuff. And yes. now we have reached. Yes,
1: I would recommend it too. Yep.
0: Yeah. Oh, you, oh, are you, are you familiar with, <laughs> are you familiar with that cart tool?
1: Oh, Oh, sure. Sure. You know, one of the things too, I would say to anyone, a newcomer or to anyone listening is surround yourself with the resources that you hear that when you hear someone talk about a good book or a podcast, give it a try. Listen to things. There's going to be things that resonate with you. And you have to realize we have to do things differently in life now. And that's one of them. So when someone recommends a resource, give it a go. You never know. It could be that one thing that flips your switch.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You never know. And now we have reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions in 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, number one, uh, what was your worst memory from drinking?
1: Oh, yeah, I was ready for that one. I've got a lot of horrible memories from drinking, but I would say my worst one was when I was was just moved to Colorado. I was probably around 25. My sister uh, come up for a visit, and the very first day she's there, we go to a party. I take her to a party. She was not a big drinker, and I proceeded to get absolutely shit-faced, into a very uh, big argument with my husband. I I don't even know how she got back to my home. I drove absolutely wasted. I'm embarrassed to say, back and the very next day, she took a plane back to Mississippi. So mm-hmm. that I, I just one of I don't know for whatever reason, you know the shame and the guilt that I had over that. Um, I kind of have. St- I still live with. So that's that's one of my one of my worst memories.
0: And we've all heard of the aha moment. When was your oh shit moment indicating that you can't control your drinking?
1: Oh yeah, my oh shit moment was when I when I went to pick um, Andrew up at school. That was when I knew, boom, my life had to change. I couldn't live my life this way any longer.
0: And at this moment in your sobriety, what's your favorite resource?
1: Oh, I would have to say my number one resource is my AA group. Just the, the support and the knowledge uh, that I get there and... The The openness is just absolutely amazing. But I also, Paul, have to say that I love your podcast. And every Tuesday morning, I can't wait because it comes out, I think, on Monday after, late Monday, more, late Mondays. But I'm up on early bird. And so Tuesday mornings, I've got it in, and I'm out on uh, running and listening to your podcast. And I mm. love it.
0: Thanks for listening, Nell. <laughs> it warms my heart to hear that in um, in regards to sobriety what's the best advice you've ever received?
1: Oh, wow, you know, I knew you were going to ask this question too and and i've received so much good advice, but you know i would I guess I would just have to say is really keep it simple, you know just one day at a time don't be too hard on yourself and like you said, we tend to try and think our way out of things, and that's not simple that's not simplicity. So just keep it simple when you're sobriety on what you're going to do. That's it.
0: And then what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners?
1: You know, what do you have to lose? If you feel like shit right now, and if you're listening to this this podcast and, and, you know, you have an addiction, um, I'm certain you feel like utter shit about yourself. What do you have to lose by giving this a shot? You can always, always go back to that lifestyle if you want. Just give it a try. But if you give it a try, it has to be, you have to be all in. 100% all in.
0: And before we depart now, give listeners your own customized, you might be an alcoholic gift line.
1: Let's see. Uh, you might be an alcoholic if you're at a baseball game and you are more worried or Thinking about the seventh inning when they're going to cut the beer sales off, and you have to recruit your friends for everybody to buy beer so you know you'll have enough in case it goes into extra innings. <laughs> oh,
0: I love it. Uh, yeah, Nell. or
1: football, uh, in the fourth quarter. Yeah. <laughs> sure.
0: Sure. Now it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you, Paul.
0: Man, I got on the Eckhart Toll train late. I've been recommending his books to a lot of people, and the response is, Oh yeah, Eckhart Tolle. Read his stuff years ago. (laughs) There are two books by his that I highly recommend, The Power of Now and A New Earth. All these books are not specifically written for addiction purposes. They are so applicable to addiction. Again, that's The Power of Now and A New Earth by Eckhart Tolle. He's also got a lot of stuff on YouTube. This guy is the man recovery elevator. We took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. We can do this.